Welcome back, Brown Girls. I'm Ashanti Golar, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. We want to introduce you to our bonus season, Freedom Summer. You see, those of us who choose this work, we are natural born disruptors. When you choose service, you choose resistance. You choose to actively and unapologetically disrupt the status quo and work to build in its place equity and liberation. For our final episode of the season, we have a very special guest. Named by People Magazine as one of the five inspiring people chartering a path forward as America fights racism, Brittany Pagnet Cunningham is a force. From her time at Teach for America to co-founding Campaign Zero, Brittany is a familiar face on TV as a critical voice for young Black Americans who are fighting to end police brutality and violence. Today, we talk to Brittany about what does our future look like from here. Thank you for being here. I just have so many questions for you. You're someone who I admire everything that you're doing, especially during this time. So the first question I want to get to is, you served on the Ferguson Commission as well as President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. We talk all the time about how it's important to have a seat at the table. By having a seat at those tables, what insights did it give you about policing in America? I think one of the most important insights is that the very people who are suffering most from the injustice have to be at the center of the conversation about what the correct, equitable, and just version of our communities actually looks like. I think from a a more detailed standpoint, one of the things I really learned, or rather was confirmed, was just how much this is really a systemic issue, that there are people who enter that profession because they have altruistic motives and they want to help their community. And what they find is that they've entered a system that frankly was not built to truly serve and protect all of us equitably. And that covers up and is permissive to so many violent acts in our communities. Lastly, I think uh, from a policy standpoint, one of the things I really learned was just how dispersed policing policy is. There are over 18,000 police departments in the entire country. And so, yes, there is work that has to be done at the federal level, and the Department of Justice needs to take great care to pay attention to those things. But there are also a number of things that have to happen at the level of the state legislature, the governor, the state senate, and there are many, many things that have to happen locally, that often it is mayors who are appointing and hiring police chiefs, that often it is local police and fire boards who are approving police union contracts that can be worded in ways that are not transparent to the public and can actually subvert justice. So these are the things that we have to pay attention to at every single level, federal, local, and state, to remember that if we are honestly, truly going to get to a place where we dismantle systems that do not work for us and replace them with systems that work for all of us, then we have to be diligent at every single level of the policing conversation. I love how you went through just when we're looking at elected office, public office, that criminal justice reform, police reform, it runs through so many offices. And this is why people really need to pay attention to who they elect, because these people 
really do have a strong impact on policing in America. So thank you for walking us through that. Certainly. So I want to get into something that a lot of people actually deem controversial, the words defund the police. This is scary to so many people at the beginning of the movement that we've seen over the past few weeks, there wasn't a lot of support for defund the police. But over the past few weeks, we have actually seen support increase. In your own words, what does it mean to defund the police and why is it important? So what people have to understand is that defunding the police is half of the equation. It is a necessary rallying cry to provoke people's imagination and belief that there can be more. But once you move the money and you divest from traditional structures of policing that have continued to carry out violence in Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities, you have to move that money and reinvest it into the things that truly keep our communities safe. So the journey that Minneapolis is going through right now is a great example of this. They said, we're going to dismantle our current police department. They were led to that by not only their city council, but by the organizers and activists that made such a radically imaginative future possible by the organizers like the the first black student body president at the University of Minnesota, who compelled her schoolmates to push the school to disconnect and end their contract with the Minneapolis Police Department, followed by the K-12 school system that did the same. So what we're seeing as Minneapolis is on this journey of reimagining and reconstructing public safety in their city is, yes, the dismantling of that police department. And it will happen in phases. I think so often when people hear defund the police, they get scared because immediately they hear kind of the chaos of Gotham without the protection of Batman. And that's not what we're talking about. This will happen in pieces and will happen thoughtfully. And most importantly, it will happen with the leadership of the community. Because the second step there is to actually gather the community and the mental health experts, the community organizers, the safety experts, the public health experts, gathering those folks together to say, what are we going to design in its place? Where should the money that used to go to policing go instead? So when we see a school district, like LA Unified School District, one of the largest in the nation, when we see them say that they're going to end the practice of having police in schools, that's tens of millions of dollars that can then be reinvested into different aspects of education that our young people desperately need, into creating systems of restorative justice, into creating systems of uh, support and mental health care and counseling for young people, into ensuring that there are no more schools that have police officers, but no counselors and mental health supports. So these are the kinds of efforts that we are talking about when we're talking about defunding the police. We're not talking about leaving people without protection. We're talking about building protections in in the system, baking it into the system from the ground up so that people are living happy, healthy, whole, thriving lives from the very beginning so they don't have to be over-policed when something has happened or when something is suspected to have happened. We're talking about a broad community vision here of building safety from the ground up instead of over-policing people from the top down. 
Thank you so much for what you said about defunding the police. And we are starting to see so many Americans who are moving along and opening their eyes to the racial injustice across this country. And one of the things that we had in response to the protests was also Blackout Tuesday. And you were actually against Blackout Tuesday. And for our listeners who don't know, this was a day when users posted black squares to their social media accounts in support of Black Lives Matter. You talked about how it ended up leading to the suppression of black voices and important information. So for those people who may not get it, can you explain more about how these types of protests, which are supposed to be supportive, can actually be ineffective? And in your opinion, what are some better ways to support the movement? So I'm not against the idea of digital organizing. I am against us not being thoughtful and critical participants in what digital organizing and digital protests actually looks like. So what we know now from experts who study digital voter and protest suppression is that the intentions behind what was created by two brilliant Black women in the music industry as an effort to pause the music industry's business as usual to require that executives and artists actually get together and figure out how they're going to solve for anti-Blackness within their specific industry, that that important effort actually got exploited by people who mean our movement no good. So what we saw are tactics that we frankly have seen over the years being leveraged in voter suppression. Uh, We saw fake accounts be created that looked like they could be legitimate, but upon closer inspection were not. We saw those fake accounts mimicking the graphics and the name and the hashtags of the original plan. And we saw those people push out information that caused people to actually do things that would diminish the critical organizing on the ground and online that is happening. So what happened? Because of the confusion and chaos that was caused by those people who exploited that moment, we saw people posting black squares and tagging Black Lives Matter in it. So suddenly when you when you clicked the hashtag Black Lives Matter, which was previously a source of information, a source of action that people could take, a source of resources that people could take in order to build their anti-racist muscle, both personally and more broadly in society, we saw all of that important content be erased. We saw organizers who use the Black Lives Matter hashtag to communicate important actions happening in their community, everything from jail support to protests that were happening to the truth of information of of police officers who were kidnapping protesters, all of that stuff got erased and buried by a bunch of black squares. And that was precisely the intention of people who exploited what started off and was intended to be a powerful action of solidarity within the music industry. So we have to be critical participants of digital protest strategy to make sure that whatever we're doing, we have investigated and really examined and interrogated to make sure it will be helpful and not harmful. To your question about how we make sure, again, that we are helpful and not harmful, we have to question whether or not what we're doing is merely performative or if it will actually inspire action. So if you are posting a black square and you may or may not have posted the hashtag Black Lives Matter in the caption, 
were you linking to any information that would cause people to do better work? Were you tagging organizers and activists and leaders and thinkers, Black leaders and thinkers that people could learn from on that Blackware? Or were you just posting a Black square so that people could know that this is something that you believe in? It's not to say that the performance isn't helpful to an extent, but there is so much more that we can and have to do in order to create not just a not racist society, but a fully anti-racist society. An easy test for, for us to be doing is whether or not the action centers us or it centers the very people that we say we are standing in solidarity with. It could have been far more powerful to see non-Black people decide to post the work or the art or the photographs of Black leaders, thinkers, artists, and organizers who have been doing the work to direct people to go and follow them. It could have been far more powerful to ensure that Black people were not confused because theirs were the very stories and experiences that needed to be lifted up on a day like that and not silenced. So these are the kinds of questions we should be asking ourselves when it comes to participating in digital action. The best digital actions are the ones that require that we do something. So as we have been fighting uh, on behalf of and in association with Breonna Taylor's family to see accountability be had for her killing by Louisville police, there are phone numbers and emails, there are email templates, and there are images to post to direct other people to take action. When we look at the case of Young Grace, a Black girl who is 15 years old, incarcerated in Oakland County, Michigan for not doing her homework. There are actions there to take, there are petitions to sign. Again, there's contact information so that you can be actively advocating on Grace's behalf and all of the Graces who are out there in our country who are wrongfully incarcerated. So we have a responsibility to make sure that if we are engaging online, which can be a very powerful action, that we are actually taking action and not simply doing something that makes us look good to the people watching. There was some bidding on a bunch of different mattresses, and sure, they all look alike. The same goes for pillows. But peel away the layers, look at what's inside, and you'll see they aren't all created equal. And that's what makes every purple pillow and mattress unlike anything you've ever slept on. In the lead up to the fight of our lives in this election, I've had some less than restful nights. But it's important I'm on my A-game while working to train so many incredible Democratic women who want to run for office. And that's why I turned to purple. With proprietary technology that has been innovating comfort for over 15 years, I wanted to see what all the hype was about. Turns out the purple grid does set the purple mattress apart from every other mattress. It's a patented comfort technology that instantly adapts to your body's natural shape and sleep style. With over 1800 open air channels designed to neutralize body heat, Purple provides a cooling effect other mattresses can't replicate. I received a purple pillow and have to say, because it's engineered with the same grid as the mattress, the total head and neck support and added airflow has resulted in a more deep sleep where I'm always on the cool side of the pillow even if I move throughout the night. For BGG listeners exclusively, Purple is letting you try every Purple product risk-free with free shipping and returns. They even have financing available as low as 0% APR for qualified customers. Experience the Purple Grid and you'll sleep like never before. Go to purple.com BGG10 and use the promo code BGG10 
to receive 10% off any order of $200 or more. That's purple.com slash BGG10, promo code BGG10 for 10% off any order of $200 or more. Terms apply. So with that in mind, we actually have a lot of non-brown girl listeners. What would you say to those who are trying to better support the black community? I think that the first thing you have to do is recognize that this is going to be inward work just as much as as it is going to be outward work. And justice work requires that we hold on to both and engage in a parallel trap all at the same time. So if we hold any privileges, and they may be racial privileges, gender privileges, privilege of gender identity, right? So I am a cisgender woman. That is a privilege, uh, the privilege of religion. We, uh, you know, we live in a Judeo-Christian country, the privilege of uh, uh, physical ability, the privilege of sexual orientation, whatever privilege you hold on to, there is internal work for you to be doing to unlearn the internalized superiority that you have, that we have, and there is external work to be doing to stand in solidarity and sacrifice with the communities who are most affected by the issues that we better educate ourselves on. So it is my responsibility as a cisgender Black woman to learn about, listen to, and stand in solidarity with my Black trans sisters to make sure that I'm being of help to their work and not of harm to their work, to make sure that I recognize that my liberation, my freedom is completely tied up with whether or not they are free too, um, and that I'm not free unless they are free. So that is all about me doing things like watching Disclosure Doc on Netflix, which is a clear and accessible and incredibly powerful film that had me questioning so much of the media content, for example, that I had been taking in that I didn't even think about how it was affecting my perceptions of the value and validity of trans lives. It makes sure it means making sure that I am following trans voices on social media, that I am supporting their work with my money and my time and my ability to amplify their work, that I am buying their books, that I am donating to their organizations, that when I have a chance to pass the mic to them, that I am doing so. And it means also making sure that, yes, when it is time to make a phone call, send an email, stand in protest, sign a petition, advocate for a bill, that I am doing that. And that is a personal example that hopefully people can apply to their own lives. So look at the privileges you have and think about how you are spending that privilege on behalf of people who don't share it and in solidarity with people who don't share it rather than hoarding it to keep yourself comfortable. That is work for all of us to do. And it requires us looking in the mirror and working on ourselves every single day, recognizing that we're not perfect and we never will be, but every day is another chance to get better and better and at standing in solidarity with others and to do the external work of making the world more just and more free for everybody, not just the folks like ourselves. It's so powerful and hoping you can expand on that a little bit because we have lots of listeners who are young, who are parents of young children, and they may want to get more involved. What advice would you have about them really starting on their journey to being an anti-racist? 
Well, I would start with uh, doing the reading. Things like Ibram X. Kendi's Stamped from the Beginning, Khalil Muhammad's The Condemnation of Blackness, books by people like uh, uh, Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde, uh, books like Redefining Realness by Janet Mock. Those are some of the very places to begin to understand perspectives that may not be your own and to get educated in the discipline of uh, freedom fighting, to get educated in the discipline of what it looks like to see every day, every conversation, every interaction as an opportunity to perpetuate justice instead of perpetuate supremacy. And so I would really start by educating yourself uh, and by filling your timeline, your feed, your podcast uh, selections, your television viewing, your film viewing with the voices of the people who can continuously teach you how to do and be better. Again, this is just as much internal work as it is external work. And, you know, I think about the examples of people like John Lewis and C.T. Vivian who just entered the heavenly realm as people who personified the fact that courage is a discipline and we have to practice courage every single day. So think about the not just the big ways that you can practice courage, the protests that you can attend, the actions you can take. Think about the little ways. Think about the conversations you have with your children. Think about the ways you treat your neighbors. Think about how you treat those essential workers when it's time to go out for groceries during a pandemic that is disproportionately killing black and brown people. Think about how you tip your Instacart and your DoorDash drivers. Uh, think about how you, because that is part of fighting, for example, for economic justice and a living wage. Uh, think about how you choose what is in your children's library or what you all watch after dinner and choose something different that may be um, outside of the norm, but most certainly can help you normalize justice, equity, and the radical imagination that we all deserve to hold on to. So there are opportunities every single day for us to do better and to be better and to educate ourselves so that when we find ourselves in the moment to practice courage, whether it is a small moment or a big moment, that we are ready and up to the challenge. Really sound advice. Thank you so much, Brittany. And I want to move into our final question. What does liberation mean to you? For me, liberation very simply means a world where everyone is not struggling to survive, but a world where everyone can experience consistent thriving. That not only do Black children, brown children, Indigenous children have the space to live, but that the world doesn't kill the genius inside of them. And that all of us have the collective benefit of everyone's genius, of everyone's innovation, of everyone's heart, of everyone's talent, because we support that talent equitably and justly in the world. Brittany, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for everything that you do. We truly appreciate you. Stay up to date with us on the BGG website, www.thebgguide.com, and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at The BG Guide. The BGG podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. Until next time, Brown Girls. Hey, everyone. I wanted to share a show with you from some of our friends. It's called Sunstorm, hosted by Ai Poo and Alicia Garza. 
Aishin and Alicia are two of the leading organizers in America, and the show is all about how women help each other stay joyful and powerful amidst the chaos of life today. This season is all about finding your lane. Each week, they talk to their friends and heroes about inspirations, finding your center, and what each one of us can do to make the changes we want to see in the world. Subscribe to Sunstorm wherever you're listening to this show.